Hello, everybody. Welcome to a French Village podcast. I am here with my brilliant friend, Ben Wittes. We are discussing episodes one and two from season two. Yeah, I think we have uh, to call this season two of a French Village podcast. We are in... Ben, we have been so successful with our podcast that we have a second season. We got brought back for a second season, the, renewed. The bulwark, re, which is you, re-signed <laughs> us for a second season. Well, that's because I think we're terrific, and I think we're doing a great job. You know, and you wouldn't have been able to face JVL if you'd if you'd canceled us after one season. It's true. It would have been brutal. Would have been brutal. So, jumping in here... Um, I, I I have something I want to ask you about, like right from the jump, because uh, this is this is a good example of where it just washed over me the first time I watched it, but the second time I was trying to figure out. Okay, so the 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 second season opens and it tells you that it is uh it is September of 1941 and it is three months after the German invasion of Russia, which is important because our our communists slash socialists who are now friends are all in a in a caper together but it, it occurs to me that the first episode when the germans first invaded villeneuve uh or what's it uh um, villeneuve uh yeah uh that 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 was one year and three months ago from where we are now at the beginning of season two because it was yeah. july so, or june of of 40 right june so, of 40 so the the sequence of events um uh uh broadly speaking is um the the first 6 months of World War II after the Germans invade Poland France is a, an ally of Poland so it declares war on Germany and the two armies line up uh, and they don't do anything for six months. Uh, and this people forget this, but this was called the phony war uh, at the time. And it was a, uh, you know, it, they were officially at war, but basically nothing happened along the Western Front uh, for a full six months after uh, the 1939 declaration of war. And then all of a sudden, the Germans uh, blitz over France in a three-week period. Uh, that is when the show starts. So the reason people like Laurent have been away for a long time is that they are they've been they were called up at the beginning of the war, which was you know sort of six months earlier. But there's basically no fighting on the Western Front until. Uh, you know, 1940, the you know summer of 1940, at which point uh, the uh, Germans blitz over France and you have, you know, the British army is essentially removed at Dunkirk. Uh, and this is sort of the low point of the war for, for the Allies. Then having, you know, conquered France and knocked France out of the war, and by the way, done the same with uh, you know, uh, the the Benelux countries and, you know, taken over like most of Western Europe, the Germans then turn their attention back to the East. And in the summer of 1941, they renege on their effective alliance with the Soviets, which had allowed them to carve up Poland. And invade the Soviet Union in Operation Barbarossa. That gives rise to the Eastern Front of the war. And um, and at that point, the Communist Party goes from having a basically hands-off approach to, uh, to the Germans to having a very active resistance to the Germans in all the territories that the Germans have occupied, uh, and so that is what you're seeing in this period where the the communists go from Marcel having a, you know, being uh, pushed not to do stuff um, by his uh, party leadership to by the end of the sec the second episode, they're contemplating terrorist acts against German 
uh, official, uh, German officialdom and, and officers. Uh, and that is a reflection of the changed posture of the party in the wake of the Soviet, uh, the changed relationship with the Soviets. Uh, and that, of course, is why the, the show has to begin by identifying itself in relation to the beginning of the invasion of the Soviet Union. Yeah, which this is stuff I've I've completely missed, but makes so much sense in thinking about it. Um, or I missed the first time. But here's a question that I don't know that you'd know the answer to. But so for our fictional Laurent, uh, does you know we talked in the first season about him having kind of a PTSD from fighting. So did did they fight? So where? Oh yes. So for six so for six months they don't do anything. The 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 Germans invade France and then the French military is somewhere and starts fighting the Germans. The French military is attacked. Um, so this gets into some some weird military history. The the French military uh, is the the French state is completely traumatized by World War One when France comes very close to falling and doesn't. Uh, and an incredible number of French people are killed in World War I. Um, and so in the interwar years, the French built what has come to be called the, what was called the Maginot Line, which was the most, the heaviest uh, line of military fortifications that has ever been built. And the goal of it was to prevent the Germans from ever invading again. And the French had a um, uh, a, a high degree of confidence that their army could repel a German attack. And what happened was the Germans, and this is military history I don't know all that well, essentially just went around the Maginot Line. They didn't attack over it. And the French army collapsed very quickly. It's a three-week... Um, uh, the invasion of France took three weeks, and um, the uh, at, but those three weeks, that army was hit extremely hard, um, and you know the German uh, uh, offensive over France is still studied as one of the you know one of the one of the great military campaigns, um, and. Uh, and so it is totally plausible that, you know, many, 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 many French troops are killed. Um, a great many are captured. And uh, and the idea that somebody like Laurent would have some degree of PTSD associated with that three-week period, which is only a few months earlier, right, and a few weeks earlier from the beginning of the show is um i don't think I, I don't think implausible at all interesting okay um well that's good orientation okay so so, so i have a, oh. a, a plot point question for you yeah. that has been yep. bugging me ever since the beginning of the show um or the beginning of the second season which is in the very beginning of the second season um marie and her children show up at De Caverne's apartment um, or house. And um, she has been in, in jail and he has not. Now, the last time we see them in episode one, they are together. She has just killed Laurent and they've run th out through this tunnel together. And it is not explained initially how he... Uh, avoided getting caught and she got caught. And my question is, I don't, without giving any spoilers, is that just never explained or is there some later point at which this comes to make sense? Uh, the answer is I don't know. If it is explained, I don't remember it being explained. Um, I went back and watched the scene after you texted me being like, what's going on here? And watched it carefully and tried to, and at no point do they give you any indication. And I'll tell you, it's not, it's not uncommon for the show to occasionally, uh, take, take these leaps where like, you are now like, oh, now you are living in this space. But like, we, what is neither explained nor shown 
how you got here and like what what happened in the intervening and like one of the things about season one uh that that bothered me and i will tell you as a plot point never comes back around is like they spend a lot of time like the guys in the opening credits this dude who steals uh who steals from the school and is the and is the soldier who 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 sort of befriends gustav and we're nervous about him who brings this random soldier uh into a house and like and he drives the plot for the first half of season one, and they make like one that, they make gone. one verbal reference to him <laughs> at some point, but you never hear from him again. They don't resolve anything around him. And so um, and there are as we get into the seasons, I have like larger complaints about certain th- things where people like they don't disappear from the war. They just disappear from the plot for, for <laughs> unknown reasons. And I will will get to those. Uh, they bother me a great deal. Um, and this is one of those where it is possible they circle back to it in season two and I just didn't catch it and I don't remember it now, but I don't think they do. And not only that, I didn't remember at all when I saw this that Marie had done any time in jail. Uh, like yeah, I, I mean, either didn't catch it she, at first or. She's been in prison and she's now out and she shows up and he feels obliged to help her. And it's completely unclear why she gets arrested uh, and why he does not. And given that they are all wanted by Heinrich Müller, it's also unclear why she gets let out. And <laughs> all of a sudden, and also, this is, I guess this is like one of the things that drives me crazy about the show. Also, like suddenly she has the kids, right? So like kids in this show are like 100% plot related and they come and go except as Gustav. only as they're, except Gustav. Gustav is a constant. Uh, but the, but, but, Trust me, as we this is not a spoiler, but I'll just tell you like kids come and go almost entirely to the extent that they are plot vehicles um, and otherwise are not not useful. And it drives me crazy. Um, But yes. And so so she's now got her two children, her two boys in tow. Uh, One appears to be about 10, the other one about 13 or 14. And they go to and they she knocks on Dick Averne's door and he takes her in. Uh, Mrs. Morhange uh, shows up and sort of says, are they staying with us? And he's like, they definitely are. And she accepts that, but she's sick. Uh, she's got, she's got a cough of some kind. She doesn't want to be sick in front of them. Um, and, and I, and that's just where we are. <laughs> like Marie's right. just moving in with Dick of and, and Morhange. And at no point in these first two episodes, do they have a conversation that gives us any indication of what they've been through or how it all happened. Annoying, but it is it is what it is now there's a couple so the plot the the first season opens up though with this attempt by the communists and suzanne to steal ration tickets um to feed hungry people they have kind of an operation where they break into some um headquarters of some kind some kind of municipal building uh but they are um somebody you know a, a patrol person is there they flee they forget the tickets suzanne goes back to get them <laughs> they leave her there uh, the cops show up and the guys run away um you know under curfew and uh we don't find out until later that that she has spun some kind of tale to get herself out um but ultimately the whole thing amounts to to nothing uh certainly as far as the ration tickets go well it amounts to nothing except that she then gets released and uh, the communists are, remember, she is not a communist. She is a socialist. So they look at her with some suspicion anyway. But she, uh, they are now suspicious that it would be improbable that she would be let go that easily. And they're afraid she's been recruited to spy on them, which she denies. But then comes back and tells Marcel, actually, I lied. I was recruited uh, and I'm going to feed the cops garbage. Um, And Marcel agrees to uh, keep this secret from the party. So Marcel is showing increased Marcel, who, you know, is the sort of central character of these two episodes, uh, becomes... um, uh again complicit in uh defying the party for her but she is also more involved with the party than she was their alignment 
being them being now oriented toward resistance they they've moved toward her um and this of course becomes uh, a central feature in the kind of climactic part of this story in the second episode where the party hierarchy decides to start committing uh violent acts and Marcel objects and she seems to object at first but then votes with the party so she's getting in pretty deep here uh and actually is uh in some ways more radical than Marcel at this point yeah it's um the, it we should ju- we'll just talk about it now since it, it's come up but that that scene is a really interesting one at the end of episode two where they basically it's a funny scene too I, I sort of love these things where like it's the socialist it's the communists and then they like all do things democratically right there's like this there's this kind of like undertone of uh you know there there's the guy the local guy who you know is a jerk um, I think pretty a pretty relentless jerk uh, who, you know, just says whatever the party line is, is what we do. He just is constantly insisting that he's always, he's the one who's always threatening people with self-evaluations. Uh, but in this case, there's somebody there above him who says, no, we can vote on it. People say, let's take a vote. So they vote. And Suzanne doesn't just vote with the party. She's the deciding vote. It looks like the the call for violence is going to be voted down until she decides to be the fifth and deciding vote against essentially having deciding against argued Marcel. against it she kind of right. stabs marcel in the back because he objects she objects some others object and then they hold a vote she proposes a vote she's again more democratic than the than the communists she asks for a vote the local party boss says there are no votes we're you know we're a centralized organization uh they do hold the vote and then she turns around at the last minute and votes for it despite there being some really good arguments against it that she's actually very aware of like that they have no weapons the germans will retaliate for any violent acts tenfold and they're they're very aware of the german propensity to take and kill hostages um and the sense that anything they can do is probably not all that significant in the grand scheme of of the war um and of course the party boss's attitude is if we can make the germans behave barbarically and kill a lot of people that's great because then people will come over to us which is of course the most immoral possible argument against, you know, in favor of uh, violent action. That's right. So if I, we can induce them to murder our people, then what? It, but I will. Let me, let me just offer a theory, though, on Suzanne's deciding vote, because another thing we find out at the end, I believe, of the first episode is that when she was that she was lying to the to the communists uh when she gets back from being released from prison or not prison but she's like you know she's being held for questioning she gets released she says that she spun this tale and frankly the communists generally don't believe her or they're skeptical at least the party bosses but marcel vouches for her he's always on her side um but then she comes back towards the end and just kind of admits to him like blurts out i was actually i was recruited they want me to spy for them i need to tell you about it and so there's a question for me in her vote was, well, I have, uh, you know, I'm going to be spying on this. So am I inducing, am I inducing this group I'm spying on into the more radical of the positions? Yes. And by the way, by doing it, ingratiating yourself to them, uh, showing your loyalty. um, And so you know, they trust you more and you're pushing them into a more radical position. It is not clear at this stage whether she means for self-protective reasons actually to spy on them, in which case it would be would have been foolish for her to tell Marcel what she was doing or whether conversely she is um, uh, trying to be uh you know has told marcel the truth that she's been recruited and she's going to feed the uh the police 
you know, garbage information uh, and not really spy. But um, so her motives at this point are unclear uh, and her intentions are unclear. Which is, I mean, this is part of the storytelling that I, I quite like um, because, you know, we, we trust Suzanne. Uh, but now they're sort of putting a position like, should we trust Suzanne? We, I mean, I, I'm inclined to believe that Suzanne is, uh, is on, on the side of right. Uh, but we aren't sure. And and the fact that she does confess to Marcel is both, it's both a confession that she lied at one point, but is also maybe coming clean right now, but we don't really know. Anyway, I, I, this is sort of a, for me, this, I enjoy, I enjoy the, intrigue of this storyline i'll just offer one other quick observation that i'd missed the first time but notice the second time uh which is that the woman there's another woman in the commie meeting uh where they're discussing violence at the end of episode two and i looked at her and said oh wait i think that's the woman from season one who brought her son in who was malnutrition who like was suffering from malnutrition oh but i, I was positive that. so i went back and looked and it is so this oh, wow. woman yeah, so and I did I not miss that but completely. She, but she is relevant in this season. Um, but I never had put together the first time that it was the same woman that we met in season one. Um, so interesting, interesting little note. So um, going back to the first episode, though, there's another scene that I really want to dig into. That um, I will tell you when I think about the show one of the scenes that like stays in my mind that is that is in um i don't know just like represents the show to me for whatever reason is the is the is the scene where larche um uh heinrich schwartz and uh servier the deputy prefect all have dinner together and this is kicked off because um Schwartz, there's a new, there's new sheriff in town, new German commander, uh, who at the beginning of the episode summarily cuts off the contract between the Germans and Schwartz's sawmill. Says we don't need one anymore. We're t and Schwartz is clearly shaken by this news. It is he's lost all his other clients because he's doing business with the Germans. You know, the commander basically just says the Weimark doesn't want to do business with you anymore. It's over. Happy Sunday. Get out of my office. Um, and so Schwartz decides to go to Larche about it. But here we have and, and there's also like an, a, a scene with Daniel trying to tell Hortense, you know, you have to come to this dinner. It's a business dinner. Wives come. She says no. Her back's been bothering her. Uh, and so it is an all male dinner and it's four of our characters that we've come to know it is an, it is interesting for just a ton of reasons. I'll I'll throw a few of them out there. One is because it's interesting to see Heinrich Larche uh, and and Schwartz interact. Um, yes, this and, is and the urbane sort of, side of Heinrich Müller. That's right, um, and 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 it is. Um, it's interesting. There's the class element here, which is because these guys are kind of French high society. The German occupier still kind of hangs out with them because they're the cool kids of the French village. And so, um, you know, they're acceptable. And, and so despite what should be en enmity, they are, you know, uh, imbibing together and cheersing champagnes because they're, they're sort of in a class place together. Um, so that's one of the really interesting things about it. The second interesting thing about it and the thing that imprints on my brain is when Hortense walks in. I don't know why. I think A, I'll just be up front, is because I think she looks like ravishing in the moment. Uh like a like a startling appearance uh by a person. And one of the things Hortense makes me very mad, uh, most of the time, but like she is just as compelling on the screen as it and part of it is like these characters look like more real people um yes. than an American show. And so there's something about I don't know how they look like normally pretty in this way that I think is more arresting than the way like a Hollywood person would look. But so she shows up and immediately just like puts eyes on Mueller, uh, Mueller, uh, whatever, Heinrich. And it's like, it's electric in like a dark, gross way. Um, and she immediately starts to kind of flirt with him. But then he starts telling stories about being shot um, in what is called the Great War, and for whatever reason, it's always funny to me 
when I remember, like, they don't call this World War II that they're having because right. they don't know they're in the middle of the Second World War. The first one was the Great War. And he's telling the stories about how his was shot by the enemy and bayoneted by the enemy, which were French people, as they sit at this table together as he is an occupying force. And so the dynamics at this table, to me, it just, this is like, for me, the show at its absolute best. Yeah, I think that, and, and of course, the other thing that's going on in this scene is that, you know, because Schwartz is having trouble with his sawmill now, he is trying to get Müller to uh, uh, intervene and kind of advise him about what do I do to get my Wehrmacht contract back, which uh, Müller, in fact, does. And it says you got to go into the concrete business, which sets up uh, the rest of a whole plot line that we should talk about. Um, and so, yeah, they're chummy in a lot of different ways. And by the way, Larche, who in many ways is an appealing character, you know, he's sitting having a nice dinner with an SS guy, um, you know, and doesn't seem to be experiencing too much cognitive dissonance at that. Um yeah, I think it's it's a terrific scene, and uh, by the way, it has a uh, a there's an urtext of this scene in the history of French film, which uh, some listeners may know. So, in the interwar years, in 1938 or 39, uh, the filmmaker Renoir, who was the brother of the painter. Um, made a movie called uh, Grand Illusion, um, and uh, which is about World War One. It's about uh, French prisoners of war in World War One. It is one of the all-time great movies ever made. And in the first scene of it, um, the German commander is informed that they've just captured a group of French soldiers. And his first question is, are there any officers? And he's told that there are, and he says, bring them in for dinner. And the next scene is the French and German officer corps, some of whom are the POWs of the others, uh, having dinner together in this with, you know, a well-set table. Um, and they are all of the same class. Uh, and, you know, they're killing each other on the field, but once they are captured, they are French and German officers and they have dinner together. And um, and I think this is a either conscious or subconscious allusion to that, that, you know, the socialists and the communists are kind of right that these may be Germans and French and therefore enemies, but there is a class that they are all members of and that means they sit down and have dinner together, um, and, and make and cut deals and, and cut deals. Um, yeah, and there's a and there's a gentility between them, and of course in the Renoir film, uh, the which was made right before World War II, the implication is this class is dead now that there there isn't a. Uh, the next war will not be anything like this, which of course was true in the broad sense. Um, but in the narrower sense, I think in the French village, you still have this vestige of that. And that's that they're comfortable having dinner together um, in a way that, that that's right. I don't think, you know, in the middle of World War II, um, American officers were kind of fraternizing with German officer corps uh, uh, people in so in in so quite so socially comfortable kind of way. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you're right that it kicks off uh, another plot point that's extremely important, um, and and one that I want to dig into, and I don't want to give it short shrift, uh, which is. You know, so Heinrich says go into the concrete business and also happens to mention, and they all just sit around and 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 decide this guy's fate, essentially. Says, hey, there's a Jewish concrete business. And because of Aryanization, which the show is the first time that I became familiar with, 
I sort of understood that during World War II, you know, people just stole Jews' businesses. But I didn't really understand this concept of there being an actual policy around how it worked. Um, and this is super uh, interesting slash terrifying. Uh, but, but basically it says because of Arianization for cheap, you can get this guy Kremu's concrete business and he has to sell it to you um, or has to sell it to somebody because he's not allowed to own his business anymore, I guess. Or tell me what you know about Arianization as a policy. Yeah, so Arianization sort of started in the Reich itself. And when and they they basically stole um, it wasn't just uh, Jewish businesses, it was estates, it was uh, art. Uh, there are still cases to this day of, you know, families trying to recover their art. Um, uh, there was. Um, uh, but it was a systematic policy of removing Jewish-owned property of any value and giving it to uh, other, you know, to non-Jews. And a lot of people got very rich by this. Um, I don't know. There was a lot of Arianization in um, in France. I don't know the history of it in any detail, but, you know... Uh, there are a lot of Jewish families that used to be rich in France and, you know, ceased to be in this period. Um, and it was generally a prelude to those people getting killed. Um, and so you'll remember that in the period in which Schwarz is believed to be Jewish, uh, there's a risk of his sawmill being Aryanized and the same super creepy Vichy official who is threatening to take his sawmill away now wants to work with him to take Crimea's uh, 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 concrete business away. Uh, but uh, so, but Crimea is a very, very smart man and a very uh, clever operator. And of course he has this other idea, um, which is that, you know, he, uh, 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 Schwartz needs capital in order to buy, even at a cut rate, the, uh, the, the concrete factory. And so Crimea approaches him quietly, separately, and says, hey, what if a bank that I control gives you this money. So Crimea is from a, from a very elite business strata in France. Um, and, um, you know, the implication is that he's kind of like Rothschild level rich, right? He's, he's a financier. And when his daughter shows up in school with Gustave, she's dressed completely differently from any of the other children. So the implication is that this is this is, you know, from the very, very uh, high finance uh, echelon of the Jewish community, which was very small, but did exist. Um, and he says, what if a bank I control get, lends you the money to do this? And we'll just have an understanding that after the war, uh, you know, you'll, you know, We'll we'll have a deal that you'll you know you'll control it until then, and then we'll take it back at that point. Um, well, I, see, I think he says we'll split it. Right? We'll split it. Right. Share it. Like yeah. Um, and so you know it works out well for you. My interests get protected uh, better than the Germans and the Vichy government are willing to protect. And um, uh, and the one problem with this um, is that. He um, he has one really weird condition, which is that there's a, a a lens factory that this concrete company controls that's not profitable. But he says it's my passion, and you have to protect it, even though it's going to lose money. And the second thing is that the creepy guy from the Arianization office 
figures out what's going on and goes to Schwartz and tries to blackmail him and get a piece of the action. And that, of course, leads Schwartz to kill him, which is, by the way, the first cool thing Schwartz has done in a few episodes. But um, there's something very satisfying as a Jew watching the guy who's suspected of being a Jew and isn't and then is in a position to benefit from Aryanization, shooting twice in cold blood the Aryanization officer. I have to say, I loved that scene. Okay, well, you just blew, you blew through some big plot points there, so I want to unpack a few dynamics in here that I think are, are are super super interesting. That tell us a lot, tell us a little about Cremieux, a lot about Schwartz, um, and some about Janine. So first of all. Uh, Schwartz is ultimately before Cremieux comes and says like the this bank can give you a loan. Uh, Schwartz thinks he has to get the money from his father-in-law, Janine's dad. Um, and there's this interesting conversation where number one, Schwartz seems perfectly comfortable with the he is perfectly happy or at least willing uh, to take over this guy's business through Aryanization, and it is Janine who has not seemed to care about another person, let alone a Jew, in her entire life, who is says, I don't know about Aryanization. Like, she, it seems to give her the willies, the idea of them just confiscating somebody's business. And Schwartz, Schwartz seems more or less willing to do it. Now, and his rationalization is better us than some, you know, creep who does this. That's, that's one dynamic I want to point out. The second dynamic that I found interesting was when, when the deal is, when, Caberni is trying to set up a deal uh, with Servier and Schwartz. He seems uh, one of the things they 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 one of the reasons they need the deal to happen and they want it to happen is they want to keep the Germans from taking over the concrete business. They want to have it in French hands, um, which is an interesting just dynamic I hadn't quite thought of. And the way that Cremieux uh, is sort of he 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 basically threatens to sell it to the Germans. He knows that that's kind of his leverage point. They're offering him twice what the French are. Um, but they're banking on Cremieux's loyalty to France uh, against the Germans to let them take it over, which I think is also a very strange dynamic because they're, of course, uh, taking advantage of him. Um, like, he would get more money from the Germans. Yeah, so, look, if you're a French high society Jew, um, you know that Vichy does not have your interests at heart and Vichy is bad. But you do not, you also still probably have some illusions about what it is uh, relative to the Nazis, right? We're not in 1942 yet where they're deporting Jews to be murdered. Uh, they have anti-Semitic policies. They're not killing Jews um, yet. They, they, they learn how, um, but they're, you do know who the Nazis are, right? The Nazis have been telling you who they are, uh, for, you know, 10 years now, um, 15 years. And, um, and so I, I think there's also patriotism, right? This is a, uh, a, a, a rich French Jew, uh, who, you know, he's not a socialist, he's not a communist, he's a financier, and he's, his, uh, his class interests align pretty well with, you know, uh, with Larcher's and Schwartz's and, you know, these kind of upper crusty bourgeois types. Um, so I think there's a, you know, there's a complicated mix of things that going on, some of which are, um, uh, look very naive in retrospect, because, you know, historically, maybe, maybe the Crimeas of the world, most, some of them survived the war, a lot of them didn't. And, you know, um, and so some of the, his willingness to do business with Vichy looks, looks very naive in retrospect. But, I think it's kind of understandable. This is your government and the government, the oppose the, uh, the, the, the other side is the Gestapo. I mean, like, right. um, so I kind of understand it. I, uh, 
it would look completely insane after 1944. But like, like all of these people, they didn't know the future, which was only a few months away. But, you know, it hadn't happened right. yet. Right. Uh yeah, it, it is interesting, right, that the, the person who seems to be able to transport herself into the future to understand consequences is Janine, who who says, like, the war's going to ha- end at some point, and people who just, like, stole people's businesses, you know, I don't know about that, how that's going to go over when, when the Germans leave. Um, so it's interesting that she sort of has that foresight. It's not necessarily a moral question for her. It's more of a, like, this could turn out badly. But she does seem to have scruples, and I, like, about this. She has scruples about nothing else. She's she's a nasty piece of work from, an, yeah. from a Jew point of view. But she is, um, but she does... The scruple is taking private property. She's like, yeah, keep them out of government. I don't want Jews. I don't want a Jewish maid. But this guy owns something. You can't just take it away. <laughs> you know, it's like and, the, it's like the business rules in her still. Like she understands the business, uh, you know, fair play, and that's what she's reacting to. Yeah, he, yeah, but, I think that's totally he, right. He may be a dirty Jew, but he's got a concrete factory, and we, we, <laughs> you know, we gotta respect that. Um, right. Like she doesn't seem to mind if she gets her maid killed because she fires her. And we should talk about Sarah because Sarah's plight uh, 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 goes a little further in this situation. Um, but you know, like that doesn't trouble her conscience. But the idea that you might take somebody's concrete factory—that's that's bad stuff there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, we should, we should, let's, let's do some of the, we, we hit the big plot point of, of episode two around the communists, but the, the, the biggest plot point of, of the second episode is that Marcel and Daniel's father is dying. Um, and so, you know, it is, it is an episode that really circles around, uh, fathers and sons, brothers, uh, the relationships they're in. Um, and, you know, we learn even in this kind of short sequence where the two where Dr. Larche, Daniel uh, and Marcel go to see their dad. We we learn a whole bunch of stuff. So right? much. We learn that that uh, that that uh, Marcel has not talked to his father in five years. We learn that their mother has been dead for quite some time. We learn that uh, Daniel uh, of course, is the favorite son who has continued to stay in touch with his father, and uh, and and you can see that the father's politics has been very influential on how these boys live their lives. One, a reaction in reaction to their father, he like Marcel calls his dad's money at some point dirty money, meaning we never quite know what that means, but. There is some moral objection for Marcel to his father, whereas Daniel clearly did the go along to get along thing in part because he liked being the good son. So uh, we, but we learn, I think we learned something else, too, which is that uh, they come from real money. And, you know, from the beginning of the show, there's been this question. You have this kind of upper middle class older brother who's, you know, a, a doctor and... Uh, the mayor of the town or the deputy mayor when the show begins. And then you have this very proletarian mill worker, younger brother. Uh, They are clearly of different classes. And it is not clear, is this a situation where Danielle Larche is, is a poor kid made good? Or is it a situation where, uh, you know, Marcel Larche has fallen class-wise. Uh, and this episode really answers that question, which is that it is not that he has fallen class-wise. It is that he has very self-consciously rejected his, uh, his upbringing because he hates his father. And his father is much richer than Danielle. So actually, Danielle's lifestyle is a bit of a come down from from the sort of manor house in which he grows up. Um, uh, but Danielle, uh, but Marcel, who's living in a hovel and, you know, has to catch wild rabbits to to feed his communist party brethren, 
he has chosen that uh, out of distaste for his father and his father's lifestyle, and he refuses any part of the inheritance, and he um, uh, even has an argument after the father dies with Danielle about uh, whether whether Marcel, uh, whether he's going to get Gustave, will be will use any money from his father to get Gustave a, a warmer coat and you know new shoes, and so this is it kind of answers this question that's been lurking for a while, which is, you know, how the hell did these two brothers come to live such radically different lifestyles? And the answer is they made really different choices and they both come from, you know, not just Danielle style money, but real money. I didn't pick that up, that the dad was really rich. Yeah, so the house is... Uh, is much larger and you see it as the car is driving up to it but then he is talking in his dying breaths about his money and i know um, but it doesn't it's not it's unclear to me how much money that was it was just i mean the only thing he makes clear is that he's going to give it to daniel and not to marcel which is you know father of the year right there make yeah, sure you stick he, it to one of the kids on your deathbed but he um I mean, he is, um, I, I think the the relative opulence of the house um, is significantly more than Daniel has. There's, um, uh, it's not detailed, but it's, I, I think the suggestion is that he's, you know, quite rich and certainly uh, um, uh, Marcel, you know, describes it as dirty money, right? Which you don't kind of do that if there's, you know, if you made money as a doctor, right? right? right. He, I think the implication is he made a lot of money. He lived very well. Now, of course, from Marcel's point of view, any capitalism is, you know, if he had any kind of factory or whatever, that would be dirty money. But he's he's of the capitalist class, not of the... Uh, he's of the the owning class, not of the bourgeois class. Right. Um, well, you also see Daniel and Marcel have a conversation. They go downstairs. Daniel is sitting, has been sitting by his father's bedside, shedding tears. Marcel is getting his last licks in on his dad. His dad's getting his last licks in on Marcel. You also get the sense just from the way that Marcel looks at a picture that's on the wall of their mother and kind of touches it that perhaps she was the one that he really had the warm relationship with that he identified with um you can tell he misses her it's this sort of sweet moment but they go downstairs and daniel tries to say to him uh with every for if, if you've like if you've ever appreciated anything i've ever done for, for you like please go say something nice to him before he dies like reconcile with him you can see how important it is to daniel that they don't leave on this bitter note but of course his father passes away before that happens uh and marcel doesn't seem particularly caught up about that piece like he feels yes and, and fine even about how he left Gu it and even he later even has an exchange with gustav where gustav learns of his grandfather's death and says you must be very sad and he initially says yes and he says, actually i don't know you know he's yeah he's, he's not a um, he's not sentimental about it um so I also want to talk about Sarah because um, she had like a pretty important uh, story arc here. Um, and and it, it, it really is in the second episode uh, of the season where she kind of comes to Daniel with a piece of paper and uh, it is about her national citizenship, right, which is in, in question. Um, and it's in German, which... Is this how they really, really sent things? They send them in German to French citizens? I don't know. Um, uh, that kind of threw me for a loop. My understanding of this, and, and the background here is never explained, but um, and nor do we know enough about Sarah's background uh, situation to figure it out. But here's what I do know. So Sarah, as I recall, is from a Jewish family in Nice, I believe. Um, and the, uh, so Vichy 
as part of the spate of anti-Semitic legislation uh, promulgated very early, uh, passed a law uh, on the denaturalization of uh, recently naturalized people. Um, and uh, this was, uh, there were two of them, actually. One was about foreign Jews in France. So Jews, a, a lot of uh, country, a lot of Jewish refugees from other countries were in France, and uh, they were uh, basically a lot of them were rounded up and interred, um, interned. Sorry, um, following uh, uh, a promulgation of a uh, law in October of 1940, but the same. Uh, even before, remember, we talked about the law from uh, October 40 that uh, excluded Jews from schools and the civil service. That was the law under which uh, Madame Morange was uh, purged. But even before they did that, they set up uh, almost immediately a denaturalization law. Um, and... Uh, uh, I don't, uh, I looked it up uh, in response to this episode, and this law was uh, authorized to review half a million naturalizations that the French state had given since 1927. And I don't know why it was 1927. And these reviews caused uh, 15,000 people to have their French citizenship revoked about half of whom were Jews. And so what I think is going on here is that Sarah, we're supposed to understand that Sarah comes from a Jewish family that uh, she had been naturalized, but had been naturalized relatively recently. And so she is having that naturalization now announced that it is being reviewed. Um, under this 1940 law. And that is all I've been able to figure out about it. Um, if, if listeners have a better understanding of how we're supposed to read who she is, um, notice that the effect on her is totally different from on Marhange, who is not allowed to be a school principal anymore, but is otherwise being left alone. Um, Sarah has to register and declare herself, and then her um, her um, her uh, status as a French citizen is suddenly under review. Yeah, and this is um, interesting because the so she gets two letters. The first one's in German. She takes to Daniel, uh, and Daniel and it's Daniel kind of is able to read it and says, "You have to report for this. Like you have to go in." And then they don't show you that part. Like, the next thing you see is that she goes to Hortense when Daniel is gone, visiting his uh, father who's dying. Um, and so she she shows it to Hortense. And I, I presume this time it's in French because Sarah seems to be able to read it. And so she gives it to Hortense and says, like, what do I do now? And it it it, it was uh, – I, 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 actually, I, I didn't catch it. Is Were they actively revoking it? Is that what's in the letter? Uh, I think it just says she, it's being reviewed um, or it's been subject to question. I, I don't think it says it's being revoked, but that's the implication of it. And and what's part of what this kind of shows us is both what's happening to Sarah, but it is used as a demonstration when, when Sarah shows it to Daniel, Hortense is sort of like, what are you doing helping the help? Like, what? Like, what's your? What are you doing? But when when Sarah brings it to her, Hortense is suddenly uh, quite uh, disposed to help because it means that she gets to go visit Heinrich, yes, who, uh, with whom she's you know, developed a flirty her, kind of relationship. Her her unerring instinct for the worst people in the room. She's like, <laughs> ooh, there's an SD officer, and I can go. Um, put on um, my my very best clothing and uh, go flirt with the local uh, drug-addicted SD officer. And I can even bring him his, his hit, which I've stolen from my husband's uh, medicine cabinet. So I can go ask a favor from the Nazi, 
bearing morphine. And of course, Heinrich is just tickled by this and seems to be willing to make, at least for now, Sarah's problem go away in response to a beautiful woman bearing morphine asking for a favor. Sure. And the favor, to be clear, right, it's not that Hortense really cares about helping Sarah. She's oh, testing she really whether or not doesn't. she's testing whether or not Heinrich will do a thing for her. Yes. Right? That's the test here, is like uh and, and it is they don't this is another thing they don't show you, but it's it goes back to my my being sort of loving the moment when Hortense just shows up at the door, uh, like looking her best in that moment is because presumably what she has seen is that she has laid eyes on this guy who has come in as decided instead of skipping the dinner, she's going to show up and she's going to look, you know, her best. And she proceeds at that dinner to just put out the bat signal uh and like in full view of her husband and the other guests and it and uh daniel sort of just says casual not casually pointedly later um you know servier asked me if you and he knew each other uh because they were displaying an inappropriate level of familiarity with one another during the course of that dinner uh and hortense once again displays that she is uh has terrible judgment is terribly selfish um and uh and and yeah has just the worst t- like who is the who's the bully who, but 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 i will say actually i actually think it's something different than that it's not that she just has bad judgment it is that she is attracted to she's attracted to abusive men who have, have power power and particularly state power and are uh uh are into a certain untoward level of violence. Right. She and, finds and that willing just to do, irresistible. Yeah, willing to use it for her benefit. Yeah. Uh, and so just like Marchetti had used what he knew to help her with Tequiero, she's, she's basically uh, putting chum in the water here just to see if Heinrich will go for it, which of course he does. He doesn't even look at it, just says, done. Which, of um, course, brings us to the subject of unwanted pregnancy. And speaking of, <laughs> speaking of people who make bad decisions. Yes. <laughs> um, Lucien continues her uh, almost unbroken record of, uh, of uh, bad life decisions. At the end of the second episode of the season, uh, we find out that she is pregnant um, and of course, the assumption is that this must be Kurt's baby. Um, uh, and so the poor woman goes from starting episode one of the series by letting a bunch of kids get strafed by uh, an airplane, German airplane, to being pregnant with the German soldier's baby. Um, and has a very distressed look on her face as uh, Danielle Larcher uh, uh, reveals this news from her, to her. Yeah. So first of all, let's back up here because I want to complain about Barryat again because, and I'm it is it is uh, it, I am surprised by my own reaction. I went the whole way through the first the whole series as like somebody who likes Barria, a Barrio, Barrio, Barrio. Barrio, uh, I, I, I mostly like him. Uh, I like him so much less on the second go round for whatever <laughs> reason. I am just like annoyed at what he does. But let's just—he is. I remember the reason I like him is the episode sort of opens, or this 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 storyline opens uh, with him. It's her birthday. He has figured out he's used uh, uh, system B, which is his uh, figuring out how to make her a cake. He's got some chocolate chips that he's putting on it for the kids. They're decorate. He's got them all in on a Sunday to decorate for her. He's going all out, pulling out all the stops, which. By the way, too much, bro. It's just too much. Uh, you are overdoing it. Um, and, and then uh, when he sends the kids, this is like, this is important. We haven't talked about this at all. He sends the kids to go get some extra decorations, at which point Gustav sees her uh, coming out of the room with Kurt. Lesson and- number two. Lesson number one, don't, you're doing too much, Barrio. Uh, lesson number two, Lucien, don't bring the German boyfriend to bed in the school. 
Well, that's Bad she idea. lives. She lives I, in this I know, ball. but, you know, you're going to have to figure out. And if it's you, Sunday. If and it's Sunday. Have, and if, and if, if Barry, you're going to have she, a secret German soldier boyfriend, you're going to have to have a better uh, place to meet than the school. Okay. Well, it's like above the Whatever. I mean, this is her room. It's above the school. I, I, for whatever reason, upon second watching, I'm way more sympathetic to her than I am to him. And uh, and I am annoyed by the way that he so he so the kid Gustav sees it. That's important because it sets off a couple other little things. But then uh, comes down looking ashen like he's seen a ghost. Barrio goes, checks it out. Also figures out she's sleeping with Kurt uh, and is, you know, shattered by this and spends a little time, you know, being mean to her about it before just kind of confessing uh, that he knows all about it. Um, And and then kind of weeping about it and making her hug him uh and comfort him as 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 he sort of expresses that it'll be their little secret it's a little bit needy he's a little bit needy and you know he doesn't know that she has saved his life and she is so he knows she saved his life he doesn't know what she's done to save his life. yeah he knows he's gotten her out he he does not know that she has um uh, uh, been through hell to get him out and he also and she's not she's too not a not a, enough of an asshole to say look bucko I saved your life I'm just not that into you okay um, <laughs> yeah I'm just not that into you that is that is that is what the hint he is not getting um, and of course he like literally is so obsessed with her that when he knows about Kurt and they kind of, it's clear that they all three know, he would rather, like, weep in her arms and and take comfort in the fact that he now has a secret. Like, he's a third party to their relationship. Like, that is his comfort. Uh, and I think that's super lame, kind of creepy, uh, and that he should. And, and, of course, there's also this weird, uh, he doesn't, he does not say at any point or intimate that he might, leverage that information over her i guess to his credit but um but but now he does have that information which uh also puts me on edge him having and so do the kids and so because gustav tells his friend marcel and swears marceau marceau sorry swears into secrecy but then but he tells he, him for four squares of chocolate. Let's be yeah, clear. He, he barters he, the information. He, he does get his uh, <laughs> he, he does get his bits of chocolate. But then uh, the new girl, the daughter of the financier who shows up in these fancy clothes, who is a really good interrogator, gets Marceau to dish without even knowing it. Um, and or gets gets Gustav gets to, Gustav yeah yeah uh, and she gets him good and finds out and we're led to understand that this information is no longer compartmentalized and it is going to be everywhere among the students so now you know Lucienne is pregnant and her secret is getting around the eight year olds and <laughs> that's a bad combination. Can I just say, I'm going to, this is the other thing else. There, so on lieu of fun, somebody brought this up, or maybe it was in the chat, I can't remember. But I, there are people who say Lucienne, the, the woman who plays her, is a bad actress, right? And like Lucienne, people do not like her. I do not think Lucienne is a bad actress. Uh, I think that the, that that character is, or not Lucienne, but the person who plays her. Uh, I think that that character, there is something about the... I don't want to say emptiness exactly of that character, but that is a character to whom things constantly happen. Like the world washes over her in this way. And of course she makes some decisions, usually um, bad ones. Uh, But I think that there's, she's meant to be, boy, I guess I wish I had a better description in my head already planned, but, but I think she's meant to be sort of a cipher um and and that's why and i i don't think that um i don't think that the person playing her is not good i think it's she's well played i i think there's a question about how well written she is she is a character who seems to lack a lot of volition 
and she functions a little bit more as a plot device um, than as a three-dimensional human being. Um, she's just, as you say, this this person that all these things happen to. She's kind of not the hero of her own story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe she is a little undercooked uh narratively especially when so many of the characters are drawn so sharply where you can watch them and think i can sort of predict how this person might behave uh whereas she is um i mean i guess you can predict how she'd behave you're like whatever the bad whatever the the situation is that can get her in the most trouble she's gonna do that but uh yeah i know i i think undercooked might be or, or underwritten could be right so i think we've covered covered the field here yeah. Things are things are heating up in in season two. Yeah, I don't know how much we need to get into the shooting of Caberni. You 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 seem to think that that was a great move on Schwartz's part. Uh, well, I don't I don't know that it's a it's a wise move. Uh, you know, bodies tend do tend to be found even when you drop them in rivers, and um, somebody is going to get in trouble for shooting. Uh, Cabernet. Um, Can I just say really quick on this plot point that I thought when Cabernet comes and and confronts Schwartz about where he got the money, that I thought Schwartz really should have had a cover story. I was like, this is a thing you should have thought through, man. It seems weird to me that he's like, oh boy, I got to answer for this. Like, obviously this was going to happen. Yeah. Well, I also think the, you know, Schwartz is kind of panicking here. He is, um, you know, he's out of money. He doesn't want to rely on his father-in-law, who's, you know, wired into Vichy, but also uh, really holds things over him. And gives it gives his wife uh, power in the relationship, which she wields uh, not so nicely. Uh, and so he sees this way out. Uh, a secret side deal with the Jew you are dispossessing um, and just kind of jumps at it. And it's a good deal for him. Um, And, you know, he gets out from his father under his father-in-law's thumb and he gets a lucrative concrete business, or at least half of it in the long run. And who knows, maybe you get all of it. Um, and so I think he leaps at it and he doesn't expect that the Aryanization people are going to come after him about it. And this is a we've known this is a particularly scummy and unscrupulous guy. Um, and, you know, as we see with Schwartz all the way from the beginning of the show, he has moments where he's much more attractive than other moments. And you know, this is one of those moments where he's in self-protective mode and he's willing to deal with this guy. But when this guy comes after him, he just kills him and he plans it, seems to plan it. And um, I have to say it, it did warm my Jewish heart. <laughs> <laughs> well, then on that uh, happy murder note, uh, we will call it a day for episodes one and two. Uh, thank you, Ben. Uh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, we will be back next week on ep- for episodes three and four. Evie, take us home. Nous nous aimions bien tendrement. Homme t'aime tous les amants. Et puis un jour tu m'as quitté depuis.